All right, good morning, everybody. Hope you're all doing well. Uh, if you see some of the guys here walking a little funny this morning, limping, um, <laughs> needing, needing ice, uh, it's because of our football game that we had yesterday, but we're happy to report that we came out victorious, 3-2. to two. It was a high-scoring affair. Brian Sherstad, Brian the Bus Sherstad, running in the game-winning touchdown. Uh, it, was a, it was a sight to behold. It was great. We had a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get out there next year and play again. Um, so we've already, uh, if, you, if you haven't picked up on this yet, this is our first week of Advent. We've already started to um, celebrate the Advent season with some of the songs that we've sung, with the, count, with the candles and kids' time and all of that sort of thing. Um, but w- when you kind of think about it, and, and we, we think about Christmas as a holiday... Uh, it's really unique, and I think we maybe just kind of go into this without thinking about it, but it's really unique that Christmas is not just a holiday that we celebrate, but it's an entire season, right? And it's the only holiday <laughs> that has an entire season built up around it. Um, I was hoping that at some point we can establish, like, the President's Day season, you know, where we have, like, a month of build-up until our great celebration of President's Day or, I don't know, summer solstice or something like that. Uh, but Christmas is unique, right? Because... It's a season. It's not just a single day that we celebrate. It's not just a single holiday, but we celebrate Christmas as a season. And we do lots of things in order to really engage with this season. Um, You know, we start with something as simple as uh, the Advent candles, which um, as you come back over the next few weeks, these candles are going to be lit. And there's going to be a sense of anticipation and a sense of movement until eventually... Oh, this is a little crooked. (laughs) Don't worry, it's not going to fall over. Until eventually on uh, the 20th, the evening of the 20th, uh, we're going to light that final Christ candle. And so there's going to be this building, there's going to be this anticipation, there's going to be this movement during the season. We do this in a lot of other ways too, right? Um, Maybe you have something like this at your house, or maybe you've had something like this. I don't know if you can see it. Uh, this is a, a calendar, right? An advent calendar, and it has little boxes for each day. And I know it's not time yet, but I'm going to break the rules, right? And December 1st, you open this, and what do we have here? It's a little chocolate snowman. Cute. <laughs> so, right? And so we do this, and I don't know, does anybody, does anybody have these growing up or have these in your home? And the whole point of it is you open, every, uh, you open a door every day as Christmas comes, and there's this sense of building in anticipation until you ultimately uh, get to the 24th or the 25th, whatever this one has. Um, and you, this one only goes to the 23rd. What a ripoff. Um, oh, no, there it is, 24th, right? And so the 24th is a double door, right? It's the one that we build up to. It's this anticipation. There's something about Christmas. It's more than just about the day. It's about uh, moving upwards. I'll put this here in case I want to eat some more later. Um, For me, growing up, uh, we had something like this. Uh, This is the advent calendar that um, we had at my house growing up. Actually, this week, as I was trying to track down a picture of this, I found out that my parents gave this to my sister. So... Thanks, Mom and Dad. That was great. Great way to find that out. So my sister uh, took a picture of this. This is the Advent calendar that my entire childhood, uh, you'd grow up, obviously, we're missing day three there. Uh, But it's this handmade one that every day 
you would flip over uh, a new little square, and at the end, you know, you have this whole manger scene. I have no idea where this came from or who made it, uh, but this is like a built-in part of my holiday uh, season as you kind of build up to Christmas. My favorite was always this guy. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe I thought he looked like Santa or something. Um, but it was always so much fun as a kid, even though we knew what was coming each day. There's something about this Christmas season of flipping something over and Advent and coming and moving towards it. It's not just about the day, but it's about the longing. It's about the building. It's about something is coming. Something is not here yet and something is yet to come. Um, this has even been picked up on by, uh, sorry, don't eat chocolate when you're about to preach, apparently. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his Chronicles of Narnia book, uh, if, you, if you remember, if you've, you've read these books, the first one of the series, The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, uh, when the children find themselves in Narnia, they find themselves there, uh, and Narnia is under a curse. The whole land is under a curse, uh, and it's winter. Now, I know for some of you that sounds like a curse enough, right? Winter. Uh, but that itself isn't the curse, right? They get to Narnia. It's winter. But what do they say? It's always winter, but never Christmas, right? And so the curse in the land is that there's this longing and this building up to Christmas, but it's never going to come. Because what C.S. Lewis understood uh, is that we have built into us this sense that Christmas uh, is the end of something. Christmas is the beginning of something, but it's also the end of this season, this building up, this longing that moves towards Christmas. There's something built into this holiday. And maybe we'll say that, okay, this is just like the consumerism, right? I'm sure that somebody out here knows how many shopping days are left until Christmas. I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but you can be shamed (laughs) internally. Uh, Right? Maybe we think that it's just kind of this thing that culture wants us to get all excited about Christmas season so we can buy more things. But I think that there's something more to it than that. I think that the Christmas season at its core... Uh, apart from anything that you buy or presents or commercials or anything like that, I think the Christmas season at its core is a season of longing and a season of anticipation. And so what we're going to do this morning as we launch into uh, our Advent season, which we're going to start today and it's going to run for the next four weeks, is I want to set the stage uh, for this series. I want to set the stage for Advent by talking about the longing, by putting it within its context of, of, of the story of the exile, or the story of the advent. So we're going to start uh, by talking about the history of Israel. This is something that we do often, but it's important for us to, to remember and to remind ourselves as we begin uh, the advent season. But I'm going to take a time out because I have some water down here. <laughs> I really need to drink some. Thanks. Lesson learned, right? All right. <clears throat> so, Uh, The Christmas season as a season of hope and as a season uh, of longing. So the story itself of Christmas really is best understood within the context of exile and within the context of the the exile of the nation of Israel. And so the whole Bible, there's a good part of it at least if you're you're new to the story of the Bible, uh, focuses around a single family, a family of a man named Abraham. And so we first meet Abraham in the book of Genesis very early on, and he's just some dude uh, who is doing his thing, and God appears to Abraham, and he makes him this promise. And so in Genesis uh, 12, it says this, the Lord had said to Abraham, 
Go from your country, from your people, and from your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the, the story of the scripture kind of unfolds through this guy named Abraham. Essentially, God looks around at the way the world has become. He created it good, but sin corrupted it. And he says, all right, I need to go into action here to put things back to order, to put order back to the chaos, to bring peace or shalom back to this world, to put things back how I intended them. He says, okay, Abraham, your family is going to be my agents of hope. Your family are going to be the ones who do this. And so he says, I'm going to bless you. But most importantly here, and this is the highlighted part, right? All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the story of the Bible focuses for a good portion of it around this family of a man named Abraham. And the point is that Abraham's family is going to bring a blessing to the whole world. So this is going great for a while. As you read through the book of Genesis, Abraham's family is growing. Abraham's family is becoming more influential. Abraham's family is becoming uh, more rich. But the book of Genesis ends, and then the book of Exodus begins. And if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, it opens in the land of Egypt. And the problem is that now this family that was once this growing, influential people who are going to bless the whole world are now slaves. They're living as slaves uh, under the world superpower at the time of Egypt. And it's kind of hard to be a blessing. It's kind of hard to change the world. It's kind of hard to be God's agents of hope when your life consists of waking up, baking bricks, waking up, building cities, waking up, baking more bricks, waking up, building more cities, right? They were not the people that they were hoping they would be. The life that they're living right now was not what God had planned for them and not what God had called them to. So the people of Israel realized this, they internalized this, they looked around at their situation and said, this can't be right, there's got to be something more. We're supposed to be these people of blessing, why are we slaves? And so, they cry out to God. They cry out to God and say, God, we're being oppressed, come and save us. And so something really important happens here. Uh, When we turn uh, to the book of Exodus chapter 3, you don't have to turn there right now, God appears to this guy named Moses, and he says this, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It goes on from there. So here's what's going on. Israel is not doing what God had called them to do. They are not being these people of hope and these people of blessing that God had promised Abraham. So they cry cry out to God to say, God, this isn't right. There's something wrong with this. What does God do? He hears their cry and he comes down to rescue them. And so this launches into the story of uh, the Exodus, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, with Pharaoh and the plagues. Uh, If you don't know the story, go watch the cartoon. Uh, It's great. But eventually, uh, the Israelites are led out of Egypt. Uh, They're brought into this great land, this land flowing with milk and honey. uh, And they begin to establish themselves as a people. 
And over a series of generations, after some misfires, they eventually start to hit their stride. And they start to become a real deal kingdom. They have a king. They have an army. They have money. Uh, they have influence. In fact, there's this great story uh, where we're told that the queen of Sheba has heard about the greatness in the land of Israel. That This is the name of this family. And she travels from her home to go to Israel to see what it is that's there. And when she's there, she returns and she says, uh, the stories are not even half the truth of how brilliant this place is. And so people are coming to Israel to learn about God and to learn about their way of life. For these people living under this kingdom, they could look back at the time of Abraham when God made this promise and said, you are going to be a great people. All of the world will be blessed through you. And they could look at their lives at this point and they could say, it's happening. This is it. We are going to bless the world. We're being blessed. We're becoming more influential, more powerful. We are going to bring God to the world. But... Of course, things go pretty south pretty quickly uh, from there. Israel, on their way to the top, begins to forget who it is that was blessing them. They begin to forget the God who himself was the one who made them who they were. There's this series uh, of rejections of God, a point where the people of Israel are, are intentionally going out of their way to separate themselves from the God who had promised them blessing. Uh, These Israelites go out of their way to become false prophets. They become priests of these false idols and these false gods. And as they do, as they separate themselves from God, suddenly the influence and the stature of that people begins to shrink. To the point where a good chunk of them are destroyed by the Assyrian Empire in the year 722 BC. And there's just this small remnant left living down in Jerusalem in the area around. And pretty soon those people too, even though they've kind of started to come back to God, uh, in the year 586 BC, a man named Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the world empire at the time, the Babylonians, comes into Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, the capital city of this family of Abraham that God said, you are going to be a people who are going to bless the world, this people who were once influential and had a king and people were coming to hear and to learn. Now Nebuchadnezzar and his army have surrounded the walls of the only city that's left. And after laying siege to the city for two years, Nebuchadnezzar breaks down the walls of Jerusalem. His army just floods in and begins to destroy and kill, and burn the entire city. Ultimately, and this is probably the hardest thing for the Israelites to to comprehend and to digest, Nebuchadnezzar and his army go into the temple. Now, the temple, we have to understand, was seen to be uh, kind of the palace of God. The Ark of the Covenant was there, and the Ark of the Covenant was the throne, God's throne. Uh, But Nebuchadnezzar goes into the temple and destroys and burns and pillages. So here's Israel. This promise was made to Abraham. You are going to be a great and mighty people. They became, or they're on their way to becoming that great and mighty people. But now they have nothing. The small amount of people who weren't killed uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's siege of the city were taken to go live back uh, in the city of Babylon, where they lived as exiles 
under the reign of the Babylonian Empire. So, do we see some parallels here? <laughs> when we get to the book of Exodus, Egypt's, or the Israelites are slaves, not being able to do what God called them to do under the world superpower at Egypt. Now, here are the Israelites living as exiles in Babylon, not being able to do what they are called to do under the world superpower of Babylon. So there's parallels. When they're in Egypt, what do the Israelites do? They cried out to God, saying, this isn't right, fix this, help us, save us. And what does God do? He hears their cry, and he comes down to rescue them. When the Israelites are in exile in Babylon, uh, they do the exact same thing. They begin to cry out to God. Now, we have a lot of literature, a uh, lot of writings that communicate uh, some of this, these cries out. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 80. Psalm 80 uh, is uh, essentially a psalm or a cry that was written during uh, this time of conquest. Whether this was written when uh, the Assyrians came or the Babylonians came is kind of irrelevant. Uh, the point here is that these are the Israelites crying out to God. And so listen to these words in Psalm 80. I'll start in verse 1. He says, Hear us, shepherd of Israel. On uh, Wednesday night, we talked about how God is often portrayed as the shepherd, the good shepherd of Israel. It says, Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, Shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Awaken your might and come save us. This is a cry of a people who realize that their world is not right. Listen to this. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. This is not somebody just complaining because they're having a bad day. You can feel this, right? <laughs> You have made your people drink tears by the bowlful, right? Uh, this, is, this is physical. This is visceral. This is true longing. This is a people who look around at their life and realize how far they have come from where they once were. They realize how far away they are from the people that God had called them to be. And their cry is simply this, restore us, O God. Uh, as, as this psalm continues, it begins to paint this really beautiful picture of Israel like a tree that was taken out of Egypt and was planted in this land. And it began to grow and it began to flourish. Uh, but then uh, in verse 16, it says this, your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. So in this psalm, 
there's this movement uh, from simply an acknowledgement of we are helpless, we are broken, restore us. By the time it gets to the end, they're pleading with God, right? They're saying, send someone, send the man at your right hand to restore us, to bring us out of this exile. And then we promise you, we will never depart. Psalm 80 and the psalms that are surrounding it, you can, you can read those at some point, uh, are these very real cries of a people in exile. And in these cries, we see in a very real, tangible way, longing. These are people who are longing for something better. They recognize that this is not how it's supposed to be. Uh, there's got to be something better, and they want that. And so they cry out, to God. Now, when the Israelites were in Egypt, they cried out to God, probably very similar to this sort of thing. And God heard their cry, and he came down to rescue them. When the Israelites cry out in exile, restore us, O God, make your face shine upon us. God hears their cry, and he does something about it. Uh, There was a man who lived in Babylon. He was a child of the exile. uh, And his name was Ezekiel. You may be familiar with Ezekiel. Ezekiel was one of the three major prophets of the nation of Israel, at least the major prophets that wrote wrote books that we have in our Bible. Uh, And during his lifetime, Ezekiel uh, was the mouthpiece of God. He was the one who was living in Babylon amongst the community of exiles, this community of people who were crying out, saying, God, restore us, save us, this isn't right. Ezekiel was among them, and it was his job to speak to the people the words of God. God would speak to him, and then he would communicate it to his people. Probably one of the the most famous, memorable stories in the life of Ezekiel uh, is in Ezekiel chapter 37. Um, And you don't have to turn there. You can if you want to. Uh, But in Ezekiel 37, there's this extremely vivid picture of God hearing the cries of his people and responding. And so uh, the chapter begins like this. The hand of the Lord was on me. This is Ezekiel speaking. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many of bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry, When a bone is very dry, that means it's been dead for a long time. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. So in the psalmist, we see Israel depicted as this vine that has been planted in Israel, but then has been chopped down. Here, we see this other sort of imagery, where God has brought Ezekiel to this valley where he looks around at all of these dry bones. And what we're going to learn in a second here is that these bones don't just represent people who have died, but instead represent Israel as a whole. Remember, Ezekiel is one of the people who's living in exile. He's living in this community where they are not what God had called them and promised them they would be. And so, in a very real way, Israel is this valley of death, this valley of dry bones. There is no life in Israel. 
What can you do when you live in exile? How can you bless the world when you're simply this small remnant of people with no power, with no king, with no army, with no influence? Israel was dead. Israel was this valley of bones. This valley of bones cried out to God. And this is what happens. And so uh, as you read through the story, uh, this is one of the most vivid images in the Old Testament. Ezekiel begins to prophesy to this valley, this valley full of all these bones. God says, prophesy to them. And so Ezekiel does. And he says, pretty soon, he hears this clattering noise of the bones clinking together. And he looks around and he sees these bones rising up and forming into skeletons. This is like, this is in the Bible. It's weird, but it's in the Bible. These bones rise up and they form into skeletons. And then Ezekiel looks again and he says, ligaments and tendons begin to grow onto these bones. And then pretty soon flesh begins to grow onto the bones. So in this vision that he's having or in this, this thing that he's seeing, these bones, these dry, dead bones are joining together and they're forming back into people. But it says there's still no life in them. There were still dead bodies. And then he continued to prophesy. Uh, and at this point, uh, God begins to breathe life back into these people in a very similar way that God brought, 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 breathed life into Adam. He's now breathing life into these bodies that have just formed. And pretty soon, there was a great army standing around the valley. So before his very eyes, Ezekiel, this man living in exile, this man living in a time where Israel is not what they were called to be. Israel is essentially dead, is brought to this valley. He sees these dry, dead bones come together, and pretty soon, life comes back. He sees life come from something that is very dead. And then he said, God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. So, put this into the context of what we've been talking about. Israel was once this great people who were promised to be a great people, but now they're living in exile, they're hopeless, they're dead. Ezekiel has this vision, and then he says, he's told to go to the people and say that the Lord is going to bring you back. In other words, this state of exile, this state of death and dryness and nothingness is not your final state, but there is something to come. When Israel was in Egypt, they cried out under their oppression. God heard them and brought Moses to rescue them, to bring them into the land. Israel's in exile in Babylon. They cry out from under their oppression. God hears their cry, and he brings them up back into their land. But here's the thing. 
after this whole incident is done and, and Ezekiel's done with this vision, he goes back to his people in exile. And guess what? They are still a people in exile. When this vision is over, things aren't fixed. There's still something that isn't right. They're still living in this state of this is not who we were supposed to be. And so this is where this idea of longing comes in. God has heard their cry and God has promised to rescue them and to save them and to restore them. But that has not happened yet. Some of the other prophets begin to develop more this idea of a son of man or an anointed one. The Hebrew word uh, for an anointed one is Messiah. Uh, The Greek word for this is Christos or Christ. Uh, The prophets begin to talk about an anointed one who is going to lead Israel back into this place of prominence. So here we have longing. We have a people who are at a place right now where things aren't right. They're dead. They're dry. They're broken. The world is not as God would have it to be. But they know that something better is coming. That something better is the Lord's Messiah, the Anointed One, who will bring them back into their land and reestablish them. Now, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we actually get into the Advent story, the Christmas story. We're going to zip past the actual birth of Jesus. um, And we're going to go to a few days after his birth uh, when his parents have brought him to Jerusalem. Israel is back living in the land now, but they're still deeply living under the oppression of the Romans. They are not yet this people who are restored like God had promised they would be. But in Luke chapter 2... Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, bring him to the temple because they want to dedicate him uh, as, as according to the law. And in verse 25, this is a really popular story that you may be familiar with. Verse 25 of chapter 2. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout, meaning he was somebody who was really engaged with the religious life of Israel. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel... And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So this was a guy who was very uh, tangibly engaged in this sort of longing that we see in the books of Psalms and the books of Ezekiel. We see this guy waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he was waiting for a time when this deadness and this dryness and this brokenness gave way to life. And he was told that he would physically see, he would not pass away before he saw the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of Man who was going to bring that life back from that death. Verse 27, Moved by the Spirit, He went into the temple courts when the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentile in the glory of your people, Israel. In these words, very simple prayer, Simeon 
is encapsulating this entire feeling of longing that has been a very real part of what it meant to be an Israelite for the past few hundred years. Simeon holds this baby. He sees this child and he says, Lord, this is the one. In other words, the thing that he has been waiting for is finally here. The Christmas story from the very beginning is a story that is deeply embedded with a sense of longing. If you remove the longing from Christmas, it doesn't really make sense. It only makes sense when we read this guy Simeon celebrating, when we understand where he as a people, where he as a religious man is coming from. Waiting for a chance when God would not only restore his people, but when ultimately God would begin to bless the entire world through them. We know as we read through the life of Jesus and the writings that come after him, uh, that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, truly all peoples in the world have been blessed through this man, through this family. All people can now come to God through the person of Jesus. This longing is finally understood in the person of Jesus. And so, the Christmas story is deeply about longing. So when we do Advent calendars, When we do Advent candles, when we count how many shopping days there are till Christmas, we're actually engaging in something that is essentially (laughs) Christmassy. We're doing something that at its core is in line with the Christmas story. Okay, so let's wrap all this up here. Um, I think for for many of us uh, who are are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, um, there's this really deep dissatisfaction 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 with the way that christmas is done right we who truly understand that that christmas is the celebration of the birth of jesus and all that that means we look around at what happens in our world and in our culture and especially in our country and we see people completely missing it right we see that the true Hope and joy and reason of Christmas is being slowly pushed away. So there's a couple ways that we handle this. Uh, Some of us, we just kind of choose to just totally shut off and be like, fine, if that's the way that the culture is doing Christmas, that's not the way I do Christmas, so I'm just not going to even engage. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to put up a Christmas tree. I'm not going to do any of these things that the culture does with Christmas because that's not truly Christmas and I'm just going to step out. Uh, but ultimately, uh, you're the only one who misses out because you don't get to watch the Grinch uh, TV show. Um, And so that's not really a helpful way to do it. Probably what's more prevalent, and especially in the dawn of the Facebook era, (laughs) what becomes more prevalent uh, is the way that we deal with it is we say, well, if you don't deal do Christmas right, I am going to make sure that you know the real reason of Christmas. If you dare say happy holidays to me, you know what you're getting? You're getting a big, fat, merry Christmas, and I'm going to stare you right in the eyes and say it, right? We are in a war against those who are trying to take away our Christmas from us, right? We may even be so bold as to tell our baristas that our name is Merry Christmas, just so they write it on our cups. How dare they? 
right? And so we kind of have this other perspective where maybe we don't disengage, but maybe we engage too much and we like get on our body armor and we go out for this war on Christmas and we are going to save Christmas from those pagans. But here's the thing. (laughs) That's not really effective. Has anybody ever seen someone uh, say, you know what? You're right. I shouldn't say happy holidays. I should say Merry Christmas because someone looked them straight in the eyes and told them that or read a Facebook post that told them to do so, right? That's not really effective either. And so there has to be another way. How is it uh, that we can do Christmas in a way that is true? How is it that we can do Advent in a way that's actually helpful for ourselves and helpful for our world? What if, instead of disengaging, or instead of attacking those who dare steal Christmas from us, what if we simply made it our goal, personally, as individuals and as a church community, to reclaim the truth that is in Christmas uh, that our culture sees and feels and engages with? The build-up to the holiday season, we may dismiss as this cultural, commercial baggage to try to get our money. But in fact, at the root of this idea of building up to something is the true story of Christmas. What if instead of pushing back, what if we simply dove in and said, well, I personally am going to long for Christmas and I'm going to count down the days to Christmas, not because I want to make sure all my presents are bought, but because the Christmas story is deeply a story about longing. What if we simply made it our goal to do Christmas and to do Advent in a way that was helpful? Maybe uh, the changes that we do or maybe those things that we make and the decisions that we make begin to affect us in a way that we truly can engage with Advent in a way that is reflective of the Scriptures. And so... We're going to help you do that this year. This is something that we as a church would love for you to be a part of. Um, Last year, our buddy Gary Hansen at the Brean Bible Church in Seattle um, put together a book that uh, his church, their church there, went through together. Uh, There was a small reading for each day, uh, a small scripture reading, and then some of the members of the church wrote little reflections on that. Uh, These went along with these themes of Advent, longing, fear, joy, peace, uh, the things that we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. And it helped the congregation to refocus and recenter themselves on the truth of Christmas as they work through this season. Instead of disengaging and instead of overly engaging, to simply do Christmas at its whole. Uh, They've asked this year if we would like to be a part of this. And so a few of us in our congregation actually wrote some reflections and some devotions for them to put together uh, in their book called The God Who Is With Us. Uh, And this book is very simple. (laughs) There's a small piece of scripture. There's a small reflection that goes along with it as they work through the different themes of Advent that we're going to be preaching on. We would love it if you take part in this with us this year. Uh, I think that this is probably one of the most helpful ways that we, as a church community, can do Advent right. Not disengaging, not pushing too hard, but simply just engaging with the story uh, in a real, tangible, helpful way. 
And so we have these books. We have 50 physical copies. They're out there on the table. I'd love for you to pick one up for your family on the way out. This is something that we want you to do, not by yourself, but we want you to do with your family. If you have kids, to do it with your kids. If you have uh, a spouse, do it with your spouse. If you have some friends that you want to do it with, do it with some friends. You can do it with yourself uh, as well. Um, But this is what I feel will be a good way for us to work through this season together. Now, if you're not so much into paper, we also have these uh, in an iBook form and a PDF form. I'll put the links on the Facebook page this afternoon. So if you don't want one of these, and like I said, we only have 50 of them. So if you'd rather just have one on your, on your tablet, um, go onto our Facebook page this afternoon and get one. But we're doing this because we feel and we know that there is a better way to do Christmas. We know that the longing that we feel is not something that is being preached to us, but it's something that is very real and natural and intrinsically built into the Christmas season. And so we long because the story is about longing. I want to encourage you this season to do Christmas in a way where we reclaim in a healthy and a helpful way uh, the truth of this season. And so grab one of these books on your way out. But more importantly, uh, make it your goal with your family, with yourself, with your community here at this church. To this year, embrace the Advent season. Watch the Grinch. Eat a candy cane. Do all of the things that we do in Christmas because it's a season of longing. There's something coming. There's something that's not here yet. We can look around at our world in a very similar way to the exiles in, in, in Babylon. And we can say, there's got to be something more. There's got to be something better. And in fact, there is, right? The Advent season is not just about the birth of Jesus, but it's about the return of Jesus. And we can look around at our world and we can long for that return. A day when all tears will be wiped A day when weapons will be beaten into gardening tools. A day where the presence of the Lord will be amongst his people. We can long for that day. We can do that in this Christmas season. Just like the exiles. They weren't there yet, but it was coming. We're not here yet, but it's coming. Let's engage with this longing. Because truly the Christmas of spirit, the the spirit of Christmas, uh, is deep deeply embedded with a sense of there's something yet to come. Let's pray. God, as we, as a community, enter into this season of hope and longing and joy and all of the the beautiful things that come along with Christmas, it's our prayer that you can help us to do so in a way that reclaims this truth. It's our prayer that we can be people who do Christmas in a way that responds to the story, but also respond to the way uh, that it radically impacts and changes not only our life, but the world. And so help us to be people who do Christmas right. As we read together, as we sing together, as we study your word together, help us to always be focusing on what it means to truly celebrate the joy of the Advent. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Grace be with you.